So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about 
as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap, human space once, completely again. overlap once again. I on now? There we go. Okay. They do a great job of taking complicated ideas and making them simple to digest and fun. And I wanted to show you that because that's basically what we've been talking about for the last, oh, two or three weeks. But I hadn't, pl I had planned on just doing three weeks on Afterlife. But we've had so many conversations with you. I've gotten texts and phone calls and emails and people stopping, just saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Because this very idea is counter to what many of us understand heaven to be. And so if we don't have a correct understanding of what heaven is and a correct understanding of what afterlife is, it really messes up all the rest of our theology about God and how we typically are focused. How do we live our life here in this earth right now? Because that's really where a lot of this is about. Is So if this is true, how do I live now? And interestingly, most of us have grown up with an idea that we go to heaven I'm not going to rehash all that because you just saw a video, and we've talked about it for a couple of weeks. Um, but the Bible doesn't actually say we ever go to heaven. Instead, it says heaven's coming here, that there's a new Jerusalem that is uh, coming out of the heavens and is going to be here somehow. And, um, and this changes the way we understand everything when we begin to, to, to talk about some of the political arguments that are going on today about the world and are we going to destroy the world and things like that. There's a, there is a problem with understanding the Bible biblically and also understanding some of the arguments to say we're going to destroy the world. There, it's, there's also a problem in just saying that we're going to escape this sin-filled place and now we're going to go to this wonderful, perfect, everything's great place. There's a problem with that mindset and there's a problem with just that understanding of what it looks like to go to heaven. So as we come through here, I want to I, I want to dive down today into the idea that heaven is a return in a sense to the Garden of Eden. However, the Bible doesn't say that we will go back to Eden. It says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem will come down. So it's actually a new thing. It's, we can't go back to Eden even, um, even when we die, even when everything is taken care of. We cannot go back. But the core idea that both this video and what I've been kind of sharing with you that the Bible really says is that God has this unlimited space and we have a limited space. So before God created, he hovered over the darkness. It was just God and he could do whatever he wanted. He began to create and he created the heavens and he created the earth. And we do understand the heavens to often mean the sky, the universe, the, you know, space, this outside place. And so when we talk about heaven, it's easy to think about, you know, God living in the clouds or somehow living in that area that um, at one time we never even imagined a, a human could visit. Uh, and then we have the space program and now we can visit space. And so how do we understand is God, how did, did we fly past? Does, can the shuttle like pull up to God's garage and knock on the door? I, you know, how does all of that work? Uh, but we have this idea that God has this unlimited, wonderful, perfect, beautiful space, and we have this limited space that somehow changes um, over time. And 
what the Bible also tells us that God has been overlapping that space since it was created. So the space we share was created by God. It is uh, something that God has created for us and expects us to operate in a certain way within this space. Um, and Eden is this place when we read in Genesis 1, this we read so much the understanding of the rest of Scripture of how God wants to work and the problems of God working in our lives. One of the challenges I see with a lot of people that attend church regularly is the desire to experience God more fully and not exactly sure how to do that. We talk about when we pray, we should hear from God. And so there, there's a lot of misuse of that mentality. Like Sometimes you hear someone say, well, I, I heard God say to me, you need to give me lots of money so I can buy a plane that I can fly around the world in. And we listen to that, and then that to the idea that a person can actually hear anything from God. Or someone will say something to the effect of, I prayed and I heard from God, and he said, I'm the new Jesus. We hear people say things like that, and then we're like, ah, this is crazy. Nobody can really hear God like that. Because most of the time we hear those stories, they're, they're like, you know, wacky, weird, you know, stories that no way that they're true. But yet there are many who follow Christ and hear from him regularly. And so I hear from a lot of people that are just like, I just don't know how to do that. I just don't feel like I ever hear from God. I don't know what he's saying to me. And part of the problem is a misunderstanding of this overlapping of space. It's one of the problems of our relationship with Christ not being more interpersonal, not being more intimate, not being kind of a give and take where it's just kind of us back here trying to learn about him and figure out is any of this stuff true. So that's one of the problems that we struggle with, and, and Eden gives us a picture of what it looked like when there wasn't this struggle. Eden and heaven overlap so completely that Adam and Eve are literally walking with God. God is like, you know, we, we read that God walks into the garden, and he's like, hey, Adam and Eve, where are you? Wouldn't that be awesome if you're in your house, and all of a sudden God just is walking through your living room saying, hey, where are you at? Wouldn't that be something if that was part of our experience? We have a we have a dog in our house that barks at anything, uh, including her, her shadow. So I, if God walked into our house, she would be barking like crazy, I'm sure. Uh, and if I were to tell you that God walked into my house and I saw him, you would probably think I was crazy. And I, God hasn't walked into my house, if some of you were thinking I might be crazy. But this intersection of God and humanity, or heaven and earth, this is the story of the Bible that we talk about in so many different ways, in so many different sermon series. And if we don't understand the whole of Scripture, then we will pick a few verses that match our understanding and we'll go with it. But when we begin to look at all of Scripture, it begins to give a more cohesive picture. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to begin and I want to end with the same thing. What does Eden look like? Now, you can figure that out for yourself just by reading the first couple of chapters of Genesis. There's a pretty good description of what Eden is. And as we've said a few times now, uh, when, when the Bible talks about Eden, there are some geographical references that are like you can go to today. You can set your GPS and you can show up there today. But then there are some geographical references that uh, you can't find today. So there's this interesting place of even scripture saying this is like a real place that intersects heaven, but there's a part of this of Eden that intersects the heavens that we don't have access to anymore. But when we read about Eden and what was it was like for Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree that kind of got them kicked out of Eden, we find a, a number of really good things. And um, throughout Eden and then on to through today, we see that God has been overlapping our space ever since. Let's go to that and then go one more. The next slide. So whenever we look at what Eden is supposed to be, when heaven is fully overlapping the earth, if God had his way in the earth right now in the way that we would function today, one of the things that we see is that everyone's needs were met. Like everyone had everything they needed. Literally, there was no need for the clothes on your back. I mean, you had everything you needed. You had food, you had companionship, you were walking with God, you were taken care of. Everyone's needs were met. There was no fear that I, there wouldn't be enough. There was no, I need to take yours because there may not be enough for me. Everyone had enough. If, if you could just spend some time today or, or, or this coming week thinking about what would it, my life look like if I never worried that there wasn't enough, what would my life 
look like. Another thing that we see in Eden, if we were able to return to that, is that there is perfect communion. Now, I don't just mean perfect communion with God, because there is. There's this perfect relationship with God where you're walking and talking, and he's involved in your life, and, and, and you see him, and he's a part of, of every day for you. There, death is not even mentioned in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 until sin enters, and then only as an atonement for that death or for that sin. Death's not even mentioned. The, the, re, the relationship with the creation was, was one of you know, mutual working together. If you remember, that Adam was given the task to manage, to name all of the animals, to oversee, and to take care of the thing that God has Created, So there's this communion between creation and humanity. There's a communion with God, and there's perfect communion with each other. Like, like all of the frustrating things that have happened this week, and where somebody's mad at somebody, or somebody's mad at you, and you don't even know who they are. Like those things did not exist in Eden. We were in perfect communion. Imagine your very best friend, someone who finishes your sentence, and I don't know this is exactly what it would look like, but imagine that that was everybody, that you had a close relationship with everyone on the planet. It was life-giving. It was encouraging. It was perfect communion. You were never misunderstood. No one was ever trying to hurt you or take something from you. No one was ever criticizing you. I mean, this is beautiful communion of people. This is the kind of the image we have of, of Adam and Eve. Everything is just going really well. What we also see is, and this is maybe a little bit different understanding of some of what we think of as Eden, is potential, potential perfect contentment. And I believe there's a lot of what God wants to do in our lives is to push us back to this place, perfect contentment. The mindset that you don't need more to be happy. You don't have to have a better job. You don't have to have a better paycheck. You don't have to have a better car, a bigger house. You don't have to have new stuff. You don't have to always eat out. You don't always have to be putting money back for a rainy day. Uh, you're just content with everything that you have. You don't have any need for anything. But it's potential. Because as the serpent winds his way through the garden, says, but you don't have enough. You could be like God. You just need to eat from this fruit. So this perfect contentment is broken because someone whispers into their ear, you need more. So even in the Garden of Eden, there is temptation, and there is potential, and there is the opportunity for lost potential. What if it's that way in heaven too? Now, I don't think that there's going to be the same temptation for, to sin in, in the new Jerusalem that's coming simply because Jesus has kind of taken care of all of that. There will not be that slithering serpent in new Jerusalem based on what we understand about the move of Jesus and how God is redeeming everything finally, perfectly in the end. But in Eden, there was a potential that you wouldn't be content. No sorrow, no consumerism, no scarcity, no elections. Maybe your football team always wins. No, that's probably not going to happen in heaven. But could you imagine that everywhere you turned, there was goodness and kindness, justice. Can you imagine that everyone was created equal? You know, that's what we talked about in Micah 6, 8, when we walk humbly with God, as we elevate others to a high place with us. We don't demean ourselves, and we don't demean others. We elevate others to a high standard just as we are elevated to a high standard. That's what humility is. It's not the devaluing of ourselves, but the elevating of everyone else. And that changes the way we interact with people. Not only you have this opportunity for perfect contentment, many of us I view heaven as like the eternal vacation. I would love to be on an eternal vacation, but even in Eden, they had work to do. They had jobs to do. I, it was meaningful work, and it seemed to be lighter work because part of the curse of sin was that the work got harder. But they would have to tend to crops. They would have to dig into the soil. They would have to go through and make sure everything is as it was to be. They had work, but it was meaningful, and it was light work. 
Now, I don't know that that means there's going to be work in heaven, but I don't know that it doesn't mean that there's not going to be work to be done in heaven. There always has been for humanity by design. And God, he, he, Scripture even says, if you're not willing to do the work, you shouldn't eat. <laughs> so work has always been a part, but meaningful light her work. And, and the problem, some of the, one of the other things, too, the jobs you had was growing a family, by the way, which if you have kids, know that that can be work and also be great joy. But then sin enters into this perfect communion, perfect contentment, this place where everyone's needs were met and everyone was joyful. There was goodness and happiness and kindness everywhere you went and sin enters and Eden is lost. Genesis 3:22 through 24 says this, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And as we talked about that before, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just knowing good and evil. It was the potential to define good and evil on your own terms. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after Eden is lost, there is this perfect separation of the heavens and the earth. We have been kicked out of all of God's presence. There is no overlapping on the earth anymore. The earth is free to just spiral out of control without the presence of God coming in. And what sin does is creates an impurity within us. Not that God gets mad at us and therefore he's going to judge us because he's mad at us, but because we cannot be in this in the heavens in this heavenly space in God's presence unless we are perfectly pure. Every time a person enters into the presence of God who is not perfectly pure in, in the Old Testament, what happens to them? They die, right? Like, like that, they're gone. They, like we, it, it's, it, it becomes dangerous to be in the presence of God because we're not pure anymore. We can't, we can't withstand his glory, and it, we just are, we end. We end. We see that time and time again in the Old Testament. Testament. Even Moses hid himself from God as he passed over, but could not himself be in the presence of God. And even just being towards the presence of God, but hidden from him, he glowed for some period of time because God's presence is so overwhelming. So Eden is lost. We are impure and can no longer even be in God's presence without the fear of being absolutely destroyed. We read in the Old Testament of God being a consuming fire. But then this really interesting thing happens. This is what I want to spend the rest of our time today on. God re-enters our space or our domain or earth. God's presence re-enters earth through the tabernacle. And this is where God says, after the Hebrew slaves are liberated out of Egypt and they're walking through the desert and God speaks to Moses and he gives them the Ten Commandments and he creates a covenant with him. Follow my covenant. I will be with you. And the way that that's going to happen is you're going to build an ark of the covenant, and that ark of the covenant is going to be where my presence is going to be for you. And you're going to build a tabernacle, which literally means dwelling. Tabernacle literally means dwelling. God dwelling with us. And so as God dwells with us, they build this tent system in which God's presence would now overlap in this one small holy of holies in the tabernacle. And now what used to overlap in Eden and then separates completely and then overlaps again, overlaps in the holy of holies that travels with the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go to that next slide. And on this picture, you can see, it's kind of hard because our screen kind of washes it out, you can see some of the primary elements of what it looks like to be a part of the temple or the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. So we have over here the gate, and what would happen whenever 
it was time to enter into the presence of God, which only happened once a year and only by the high priest and only after a significant time of purifying and cleaning of himself so that he was clean enough to even enter into the presence of God. This would, it would be on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They would come up to these gates, those curtains that look separated on the graphic, and they would present the sacrifice that would be the sacrifice for them personally, and then they would go on to sacrifice for the nation. Sacrifice, and that is where the the uh, lamb would be sacrificed as a, a cleansing offering for the priests, and they would splatter some of the blood on the sides of the altar, and they would burn some of uh, the offering, and then they would walk over to this next piece, which was, looks like this kind of cauldron um, right here, which was called the lave, which is the place where they would wash, and they would dip their hands this water in order to represent cleanliness and, and to clean their hands after the sacrifice, and they would have to cleanse themselves. Now, this is all going to matter in a minute, so hang with me. They would walk, then walk into this larger chamber in the tent that was called the holy place, and we have another, a few other objects that you can't really see on our picture if you're in person here, but you have the table of showbread, and the table of showbread had loaves of bread that would be placed there, and every um, Sabbath, the priests would take it and eat it, and it was a sign of communion with God. You were with God's presence again. On the other side of the holy place was the menorah, and it was a lampstead said to uh, to mimic an almond tree. The branches were like almond trees budding, and it would shine as long as the tabernacle was set up. In front of that is before you got to the Holy of Holies, which was the last spot, there's the altar of incense, and that's where incense would burn, and it would just continually burn. And in Revelation, what we read about the incense is that it actually symbolized our prayers going up to God, us praying to God, the prayers of the saints. Once they had done that, the holy, of, or the holy place was a place where they would make atonement for the nation. So re- leading up to the holy place was atonement for the priests. Once they're in the holy place, atonement for the nation. And then once a year on Yom Kippur, they would enter into the holy of holies where God's presence was on the Day of Atonement. Atonement is a word that meant or has come to mean at one meant. Atonement, at one meant, a moment at which we are reunited together again. Now, I want to show you this this next slide. It's actually a video, and it's an interesting uh, little 3D walkthrough to get a better picture of what these elements would look like. And many of the, the images that you find throughout is, is actually reminiscent of Eden. Not so much seen in the tabernacle as much as you will see in the temple later once Solomon builds the temple. So this is where they would come into the gate. This would have been the altar of sacrifice. There would likely have been all kinds of tables in there and This is where they would sacrifice a lamb and burn the burnt offerings for purification of the priests. I'm not going to show one, by the way. Whenever they would sacrifice, they would put some of the blood on the sides of the altar. Those horns uh, represented the glory of God, the power of God. This is the lave that they would come and they would symbolically wash and cleanse themselves because, again, you had to be pure to be in the presence of God or you would just be destroyed. would walk into the holy place, the place of atonement for the nation. We have the menorah, which is symbolic of the palm tree. Imagery on the furniture is is all of uh, plants and 
animals and things that would remind you of the time when we did overlap. Our experience did overlap with the heavens. Crude in the tabernacle, more ornate in the temple. I'll show you that in a minute. Table of showbread. altar of incense, again, the horns representing the glory and power of God. The incense representing the prayers of the saints going up to God. And then on Yom Kippur, in the Day of Atonement, you would enter into the Holy of Holies. So the priest, representative of the nation, would again be in God's presence, and they would be at one again. That thing that we've been searching for ever since. Now, the ark originally just had the Ten Commandments in it, but then over time they added Aaron's rod, his staff that budded, and then they added some manna to it. And when on Yom Kippur, they would take some of the blood of the sacrifice and put it on the ark itself and that's the story where the priest would go in and if he hadn't perfectly cleansed himself they had tied a rope to his ankle with bells on him so that if he stopped ringing they would drag his dead body out all right let's go to the next one so fast forward to the temple that is built by solomon that is the more permanent structure for the tabernacle god's presence now being with the nation of israel it is quite a bit more ornate. You still see the altar of sacrifice here. I want you to see when we get into the holy place, the imagery there, this return to Eden. You see the the idea of trees and the to, as you enter into the holy place, this is the lave, animals around it. This is Solomon's temple. The temple will be rebuilt by uh, King Herod um, just before Jesus' time. And it would be bigger. He wanted it to be so impressive that everyone would see the glory of Israel. Not the glory of God, but the glory of Israel. This was Solomon's temple. And as you come in, you see all kinds of imagery that point back to a garden. This is the holy place again. You see the menorahs to the left, table of showbread, the altar of incense, everything lined with gold, overlaid with gold. Practices were exactly the same as the tabernacle. Altar of incense. And then leading up into the Holy of Holies. There's actually a curtain there, a veil, that would have separated them. And the Ark of the Covenant where it's said to be the throne of God and where God's presence actually would be found. All right, we can we can go to the next slide. That's enough of that. I wanted you to see that because much of the imagery of the dwelling of God is uh, very much that of, of, uh, of a garden. Because the point is not that we get to go to a place where 
every there's no problems and just there's no sadness and we never have to do anything. The thing, the whole point is that we get to be in the presence of God perpetually. And so the Garden of Eden was that place where we got to do that. And then outside of the Garden of Eden, um, the only place you could do that was here at the tabernacle and then the temple. And when we read through, I'm not going to read all these. I'm going to skip these next few slides, Jake. But in, in Exodus 40, um, it basically talks about when the tabernacle was erected, the process by which it took for Moses to finally be in God because he first the uh, then he says, you know, he could not approach the the presence of God called out to him from the tent, but yet he himself could not go into the tent. And then we go to to Leviticus 1, uh, excuse me, he just says that they built the, in Exodus 40, they built their tabernacle that, that, that the Lord was there day and night, but no one went in. And Leviticus 1, 1, then the Lord called Moses him from the tent, and then we have to go all the way to number 7 before Moses is actually invited into the tent to be in the presence of God. And then as we look throughout the Old Testament, this presence of God was meant to be a blessing to, any, to, to the nation of Israel in so much that if you went into battle, you would bring the ark with you, and most of the time you would win unless God abandoned you as a result of sin of the nation, in which we read about in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, they fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So there were times that the ark was there with them, bringing their blessing, and there was times that the sin, the impurity of the nation, caused the presence of God to withdraw from them, and then they, even to the point where the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, this overlapping of places, was captured by someone else. So as we look through that, you've got a question, Knox? Sorry, I'm having. Siri, Siri didn't understand your question. Yeah, I I remember all the things that they had to do because places like that would collect dust, even if there was no like entrance or whatnot, or there was none, but like very few people went in and out. Yeah. I remember stories of people having to clean these things, but like, how if you went in there and you weren't purified and just died? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you, you. Yeah, you were not to enter into that um, unless you were purified. That's a good question, uh, Knox, and I don't fully know the answer to that, but I will find out for you. I will find out for you. Um, so we see these things. And the video also did a great job of talking about Jesus being that temple. He is the embodiment of God's presence because he is God that he is now here among us. And so God has overlapped in Eden. Then God has overlapped in the tabernacle. God overlapped in the temple. God has now overlapped the earth through Jesus. And now Jesus being the final sacrifice has actually creates a permanent overlap that is not the tabernacle or the temple or even Jesus in the world today. We read about that in John 14, 15 through 17. Because the Holy Spirit now causes heaven and earth to overlap right now, today. Remember, when Jesus was asked, what is eternal life? He said, what? What did he say eternal life was? To what? To know God. John 14, 15 through 17 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither, neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is one of the reasons that Scripture says where two or more believers are gathered together, their God is with them. This idea that this cumulative experience of believers who have received the Holy, Holy Spirit are now this overlapping place in which the heavens and the earth exist. 
That means if you are a believer today, that means that you yourself are in some sense a temple of the living God receiving the Holy Spirit within you. So now heaven today is not mean that you can experience heaven to the degree of the fullness of heaven in your life right now. And scripture says, you know, that right now we see still things dimly. We're still pretty corrupted by the earth, but there's a time when that corruption will be gone and we will fully experience God's presence and we will fully experience this eternity. We will fully experience the heavens again. But for now, it's still somewhat corrupted, but we do experience of the heaven and the earth in our own lives because of the Holy Spirit once we become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the problems that we have is that we so often misunderstand what it means to seek his presence. And many times what we end up doing is we try to make God make the earth better than it is. I, I'm convinced that's why some are so focused on this election because they think that this, these political leaders are somehow going to make earth more of a heaven than it actually is. And that's why I, I just can't get on board with that. Be involved. Be invested. But we're not going to remake the earth in the image of heaven. We're not going to do, do that. Either the heavens are going to overlap the earth or they're not. And we cannot fabricate that thing which we can't even fully comprehend. All we can hope to do is to experience it when it overlaps. And as you are a follower of Jesus, you have that opportunity every day. When someone says, I really, I just don't hear from God. I don't experience his presence in my life. Where are you seeking heaven in your life? Like, where are you seeking for this overlapping of the presence of God in your life? One of the ways we do that is we are in communion and community with other believers. And yet today, I mean, if a person, you know, walks into to a, a, a time of worship in a church once every three or four months, they feel like I'm a regular part of this church. But we, you know, in, in, in the New Testament, they saw their relationship with each other so necessary that daily they got together. And I'm not suggesting we need to daily have worship services, by the way. But daily they would get together and they would pray together and they would talk about God's word together and they would challenge each other. They would talk about their days together. They would seek God together. And there was, a, there was a, 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 an expectation of God's presence among them. Today, so many times, we're just trying to live in the earth and get the best out of the earth that we can get. And every now and then, we hope we, God will intervene and make the bad parts go away. That's some of our ideas of heaven when we're going to die and go to heaven. I'm going to get out of all this bad stuff and finally get to the good stuff. And I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed to find out there was a lot of the good stuff here right now. And some of the things we were hoping for aren't even going to be there. If eternal life is to know Christ, and if our goal is to be intimately aligned with the presence of God in our own lives, is that really what we're seeking for heaven? Going to heaven, whatever that looks like, whether that's going into the sky or going to the new Jerusalem, means we are seeking to fully experience God's presence again. That's it. That's it. If we're looking for anything else, we're looking for the wrong thing. Like, God, I just want you to make my life easier. Okay? God's presence does make life easier. I'll tell you that. But asking God to make life easier does not mean I'm seeking God's presence. Saying, God, would you take away all of my heartache and pain? problem with that idea of what God wants to do in your life is that Jesus himself didn't even get that. Jesus was a man acquainted with many sorrows and grief. This expectation that life is just going to be perfectly happy now and, and there's going to be absolutely no problems for the follower of Jesus is just not true when we read biblically what it really looks like to be in God's presence. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this information? I told you we would return to what was Eden-like. I think Eden was a picture of what this perfect crossover of heaven and earth is. But sin has entered. We cannot go back to Eden. 
okay? We cannot go back there. We're not going to experience Eden again. He's not saying, listen, you're out until Jesus comes back, and then I'll let you back in. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. He says there's a new place coming, a different place coming, a place that recognizes that Jesus made atonement for all of us. And so in this new place, I do think there will be some of the same holdovers of what happened in Eden because Eden was partially what heaven is, perfect crossover between heaven and earth, perfect communion, perfect communion between people. Like we don't get mad at each other. We're kind to each other. We love each other. We encourage each other. Everyone is equal, equal bearers of the image of God, equally loved, equally worthy, equally valuable. We see relationships growing just naturally. We see unity. Unity is thrown around for a lot of different things right now, but we actually see true unity in mindset and thought and action. And I believe since there won't be the serpent slithering through New Jerusalem, whispering in your ear, don't be content, don't be content, you need more, you need more. There will be perfect contentment in this place, which is one of the beautiful goals of knowing Jesus, perfect contentment. That's one of the reasons we give things away. That's why we are generous. That's why we lift other people up. Possibly, this is a big, I don't know, but possibly meaningful, lighter work. (laughs) What if we have jobs in heaven? What if we have jobs in the new Jerusalem, but they're meaningful? They're easier, and you feel overwhelmingly happy to do them and full after you have completed them. So here's what I would leave you with after all this. Let me just tell you where we're going the next couple of weeks. So this idea of purity is something we've got to tackle. And um, so we're going to talk about purity and what is the purpose of purity going before God, and how do we do that now that we don't have an altar of sacrifice and a a lave there and um, altar of incense and all those things. How do we attack? Purity, how do we understand it today? We're going to talk about that. And some of the questions, I've had actually a few questions from people about, well, what about predestination and election? What about does God choose who gets to go to this new Jerusalem? And does he choose who doesn't get to go? Or do we have a choice? Or how does that all work out? And and I don't know that I have a perfect answer for that, but I do think I have a fairly well thought through biblical answer for that. And so we'll talk about that as well. But For today, here's what I want you to do. If you forget everything I've shared, I hope this just creates interest and curiosity in you, but if if you walk away here without remembering anything else I've said, I want you to ask this question of yourself. How is God overlapping your space? How is God overlapping your space, your schedule, your finances, your job, your church, everything, what you watch on TV, how is God overlapping that space? Are you seeking for God to overlap that space? Or are we doing what Adam and Eve did and saying, okay, I've got, hey, God, this is my space, this is your space at church. Let's let's keep our distance until it's time for us to overlap again. A A lot of people do that. And they wonder why they feel so empty in their faith. Ask yourself, how is God overlapping your space? Most of us are so focused on making the earth better that we miss the thing that actually makes the earth better. And the last question I would have you to ask yourself this week is this. How are you focusing on heaven today? Heaven representing God's presence. How are you focusing on that today? This is why I, I, it's, it's such a struggle, and I, I tell you, it's a problem to say things like, you really need to read Scripture every day. Like, I can tell you that, and then you can do that, and it'd be absolutely meaningless. If you only do it because you're supposed to do it, and then you get it over with, phew, got that over with, now I can get on with my day that I really wanted to, to, to do, then you could read Scripture every day, and it'd be meaningless. But if you're really seeking God's presence today, and if you're really seeking that overlap today, then that reading God's word is more than just putting in your time. 
I really want to know what he has to say. I really want to conform my life to what he has said. It changes that. Same with giving. We can say you need to give. And listen, you could give every dollar you have and have no spiritual benefit from that whatsoever. Because the heart in which we give matters. The heart in which we read scripture matters. The heart in which we pray matters. And for those who are thinking, well, I just don't know that I have a good enough heart for that. This is the glory, the beauty of the glory, the grace, and the mercy of God in which he says, listen, I'm looking at your intent. I'm not looking at how perfect you are. That's the only perfect person there to die for you. I'm not expecting you to be perfect. But it also says something to us that have been for a long time. Seeking when we come to church and when we read God, we sing songs of worship and when we give an offering and what are we really seeking here? Are we trying to get God to make the earth better? Are we really seeking his presence and where he overlaps in our life? All right. I don't know if I've caused more problems or solved any problems today. This is a lot of stuff I've just dumped on you. Um, if you want to do it again, it'll be available on our website. If you have questions, I'll stay up here and you can come up and talk to me. I'll be glad to tell you what I know, just like with Knox. I don't always know all the answers, but I'll find them out to the best of my ability. But I pray that we would be a church that is truly seeking God's presence, not only in our own lives, but that we take that out into the world so they can experience it too. Father, I thank you for your grace and your word. I thank you for uh, just so many talented people that can um, share some of your word graphically and and uh, just with imagery like we've seen today. And I, I that you would give us a greater understanding of what it means to know you, to follow you, and to be in your presence. I do pray that in the midst of such great strife and unrest um, in our country and in the world, Father, that we would find your presence overlapping ours and wherever it is. I pray that we would share that with our friends and our neighbors, with our family members, those that we work with, that we can show them there is a beauty in knowing and walking, following Jesus. I thank you that you have chosen, even though you didn't have to, you have chosen to overlap our lives throughout history. And I know that you're going to continue to do that. I thank you that we have the opportunity to experience that through the Holy Spirit today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.